this is Michael Moore, and you are listening to Rumble. Over the past few years, uh, it's, um, I have to say, it's been a little shocking for me to see liberals and you know, some fellow lefties openly embracing the FBI in the hopes that the Bureau would, would be the entity that would finally bring down Donald J. Trump. Um, I would often, uh, in the early days of the Trump era, uh, bring up to people, you know the FBI is not our friend, right? And they're like, yeah, yeah, but they, I know, I know, I know all about the history, but they're, they, you know, they're going to do good here this time. And I'm like, man, I don't know. What planet are you on? The thing is, I think that if you have a little wider view of American history, you know, you have to be extremely skeptical and sometimes openly hostile to what we're being told. But, you know, when it comes to the FBI, when you consider them, you can, and if you know the history, you consider the surveillance of who J. Edgar Hoover considered enemies of the state, their violence, the violence of the FBI against average citizens and other really criminal tactics that they, over many years, they used to quash political dissent in this country, especially when it came to suppressing movements that were intended to liberate black Americans. One of the first examples of this that comes to my mind, and only because I remember this very clearly in 1969, this is the year after Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were killed. It's three, two, three years after Malcolm X was killed. And then this incident happens. And it was very much in the news and in our consciousness in Flint, Michigan, because of one of the individuals in this, what we're going to talk about here today, who was killed. His family at the time was living in Flint. So I have a very early memory of when this happened. And it's when the FBI and the Chicago police, they infiltrated the Black Panther Party in Illinois and then set up the assassination of the party's charismatic, wonderful, funny, smart, I think one of the great orators probably of the 20th century, party chairman Fred Hampton and defense captain Mark Clark assassinated also with him on uh, December 4th, 1969. And Mark Clark is again, his family at the time was living in Flint. And so I would often tell this story about Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, you know, different when I go to speak at schools or all through the years, I've even written about it. And I'm just stunned by how many people, especially the next generation or whatever, because they don't put this stuff in your history books. Fortunately for us now here in 2021, a film director and writer and his co-writers and an outstanding cast have made an outstanding moving and dangerous new film. And I mean dangerous in the best possible sense of the word, a new film that is coming out this weekend. And it's called Judas and the black Messiah. We're going to talk about this movie and we're very lucky to have with us the director and co-writer Shaka King, and also the son of Fred Hampton, chairman Fred Hampton jr. They're both with me here on Rubble today to talk about the movie, to talk about what happened in 1969, but also how it relates today to what's going on and what we're facing and seeing. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Right on. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much uh, for, for this. And thank you for making this movie. And I think the people listening to this, especially younger people, need to hear the story of uh, Fred Hampton, of the Panthers, and of what happened on that night in December. But just start by, because my memory of the Panthers was, it started, I think, in Oakland, as I remember. And and what the Panthers did in the mid to late 60s was to try to take care of the community, providing breakfast for school children, lunches, after-school activities, lots of stuff like that. I think I, I read somewhere... Um, Shaka, where you'd mentioned that Ryan Coogler, who's also a producer of this film, told the story of, I think, his parents and how the Panthers in their neighborhood in Oakland, 
like one of the first things they did was to put up a stop sign at an intersection where kids were getting run over, a very busy intersection. So that the Panthers did all these things, but they also were a political movement. They did political education and they were about protecting the black community. Like after a certain point, this is now we're talking the 1960s now, not the 2020s, but after a certain point of being so many people being killed by police, the Panthers decided, well, that's just not right. And we have a right to defend ourselves. And so that also was a huge part of the movement. So why don't we start with Chairman Fred Jr. Tell the story of your father and how he came to be involved politically and, and become eventually the, the chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Let me touch on uh, the first question also, too. I think it's, um, it's important, too, that we put things in context. This time and right now, it's the, the type of um, conversations type of um, uh, coalitions, relationships that are happening, um, are, are, you know, are happening in leaps and bounds. I was just coming last night in regards to some other movies that I'm just, I, I was impressed with, you know, I, I want to shout them out, but I, de- I don't want to take away from putting out this, uh, <laughs> this call for everybody to go see Judas and the Black Messiah also though, but it's a climate, um, mm. uh, with, with, um, as Lennon said, where it takes people 20 years to learn in ordinary times, they can learn in two years in revolutionary times. Though these are reactionary times we are engaging in, um, I'm going to quote Malcolm X on this one. He said, "We said um, the collective, um, though the collective conscience of the people ticks slowly, it erupts. With, it erupts with a volcanic force that make Mount St. Helen look like nothing." Hmm. So, um, now to the second, the second part, part, part uh, the the, uh, the the path in the room, the, the who who we're discussing, that of Chairman Fred, Black Panther Party, a conversation that. If it's happened, it's happened in a, co- a coded type conversation, way whispering. You know, saying um, you don't speak about this in public, and so, and it's and it's and it's a disservice to to uh, to humanity, a disservice to history. That people will be deprived of acknowledging an organization that basically ranged from age, individuals range from ages fourteen to twenty four years old that uh, stood up and fought for their precious entity known as self determination. And shook the system at its knees to the point that, you know, uh, former Attorney General John Mitchell and former Director of the FBI, Jacob Hoover, had assessed that the Black Panther Party had represented the number one internal uh, threat to the United States security since that of the Civil War. And had deemed that the Black Panther Party had to be destroyed by the end of 1969. And we've seen strategic hits come down, you know, ranging from, you know, assassinations of, you know, 17-year-old little Bobby Hutton in Oakland, the streets of Oakland, California, two days after Dr. King was assassinated. The framing and kidnapping of so many uh, individuals who to this day are political prisoners, the Mumia Abu Jamal's, the Sunday Ade Kolas, and this goes on. People forced into political exile, Sada Shakur, and so many others. And that straight out assassinations. That's right. Let me just also, let me point out to people listening. These names, uh, the Chairman Fred Jr. Is, is rattling off here. This is all real. This isn't, this isn't his opinion. Yes. These are facts. Yes. And you can look, you can look all this up and I'll post some things on my site here so that you can read some of the, of this history. But uh, this didn't, obviously, this didn't just begin last year or the year before, and it didn't even begin in 1969. This has been, this has been going on uh, for, well, since time immemorial, as far as this country goes. But, but uh, Chairman Fred Jr., I just, I just want to, uh, these, these things, these assassinations, it's all part of the same thing. And when J. Edgar Hoover decided, as you said, to make, uh, uh, black America, but especially black activists, uh, to to hunt them down, to have the FBI hunt them down, mm-hmm. and and plan out the assassination, not randomly get into a gunfight, but plan out the assassinations of your father and and the other people that you were mentioning, and the people who are still political prisoners yeah. today. This is so important what you just said, and and I I want my listeners to really dig into this because what we saw happen with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and everybody else, you know, just in the last year, this is only part and parcel of, of what this country has witnessed for decades, if not, in fact, hundreds of years. No doubt. This is the, 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 the modus operandi, you know what I'm saying? I mean, um, how the system is operated in, in regards to fertility of the black community. In fact, the first, the first police, their, their, their job uh, was uh, slave, slave, slave patrols. You know, say catch runaway slaves. Right, right. We didn't have we didn't have what was called police back, say you know, three hundred years ago in this country. 
when we were colonies. And what you just, this is true. What you just said, the origins of what we call police were uh, deputized men to hunt down runaway slaves. Slave patrols. Yes. Slave patrols. Oh, slave patrols. Yeah. That's what it was called. Slave patrols. No doubt. And this is a, you know, um, this, these were official entities. This was not just something, you know, some racist white people just, you know, move, you know so moving on their own. Again, just to reiterate a, a point that you just you know, pointed out. Uh, actual programs, you know, even with uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, his career, though, though there's uh, misinformation, propaganda that has been put out there, you know, his target was the, um, uh, Al Capone, Luch uh, Luciano, and the mafioso, mafioso, but the reality is that J. Edgar Hoover even denied that the mafioso even existed for quite some time, and his career was was birthed and built. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover was a, a, a simple DA, a district attorney. His attack on targeting of you know, saying Mark, uh, Marcus Mosiah Garvey in the UNIA, that's his career was uh, become the direct FBI was birthed of that. Yeah, and right. you know, with 90% of the Tail Pro, the, the uh, counterintelligence program, over 90% of it was directed to Black Panther Party. And this is, I mean, this this was, this was not just, you know, random police going out on their, on, on their own, you know, on, on their own moves and just arbitrarily, you know, shooting down people. We're talking about an uh, entity that had floor, a floor plan of the apartment in which Chairman Fred and his, and his uh, uh, then wife, now widow, his comrade, Deborah Johnson, in which, in which they occupied a floor plan of the apartment so detailed, they wouldn't even know what pack of cigarettes might likely be at. Uh, uh, they, they went to the lengths of having such entities as the YMCA take um, 12 and 14 year old youth with the unofficial security around the block, send them out of town on a winter retreat. You know, uh, the, the dynamics of placing certain members of uh, the staff of uh, Illinois Central Committee, the Black Panther Party, placed them in isolation in, in Cook County Jail. This, you know, having a, a, though a warrant was designated to be served um, late November around twelve o'clock at noon, we, uh, the, 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 it was it was implemented approximately four thirty-five a.m. in the morning, uh, December the fourth. Strategic strikes: who they hit, when they hit, and we hear terms like uh, discussions such as this. Or we automatically think about uh, you know Russia, you know some sort of James Bond 007 type of movie, and many people in the black community. Have been it, 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 the narrative has been that the black community is not even worthy of being targeted. The black community, in particular, is not even worthy of the, uh, the, the government, you know, placing uh, crack cocaine uh, in it uh, in, in various forms of chemical biological warfare. An advantage slash disadvantage the other other communities have is at least an acknowledged war. You hear terms like political prisoners. You hear terms like uh, propaganda bombs. In our community, they call them, uh, they don't call them propaganda bombs, they call them love and hip hop shows. You know, so they don't call them chemical, call it chemical biological warfare, they call it uh, heroin, crack, you know, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the, the deal is, we the, the, the political significance that the Black Panther Party in particular, they, they up the ante. You know, so the Chairman Fred would always, would always say, everything is political, words, terms, fashion, names of organizations, how you viewed the police, how the police viewed you. And so this was a climate where revolution at least some bounds were being made. And we've seen after several attempts by the federal government to take Chairman Fred out by having, you know, some various street organizations make moves on him, to have him hit in prison. None of these, none, none, none of these were successful where they, uh, a climate, mind you, we're talking about a tenure under the former U.S. President Richard Milhouse Nixon, similar to that of Trump, where the emperor has no clothes on. It was in a row. Mm -hmm. They came out straight out of, straight out of assassination in, uh, in December, resulted in December the 4th, 1969. A day which we define as one of our September 11 stories, day in which two of our twin towers, quote unquote, failed. 21 year old Chairman Fred, 22 year old Defense Captain Mark Clark. It was a strategic blow to the Black Power movement, a strategic blow to the movement in general. And he was, just, you know, and, and, and it was it was coupled, it was uh, hit back with the flooding of our areas of our communities, in, in particular the West Side of Chicago, West Oakland. Hot beds of resistance were flooded with various forms of plantation poison. Heroin, you know, saying uh, uh, dope and so on and so forth, and these are tactics, salt in the earth, tactics. That if you if you, if you describe them abroad or somewhere else, it'll be acknowledged. These were strategic war tactics. The way that Chairman Fred was assassinated, how his body was carried out, it was a it was a send a message to the community to send terror to terrify the masses, horror to horrify the masses. It's not by happenstance that many generations to come have been fearful to even mention the name of Chairman mm -hmm. Fred, let alone the Black Panther right. Party. Right. So on that early morning, 4.30 in the morning, everyone's asleep in the apartment in Chicago. And in fact, as the movie shows, more than likely the FBI informant had drugged your father's water or whatever he was drinking. And uh, so he was pretty knocked out. They killed him 
in his bed while he's asleep, essentially. And they came in bursting, just burst the door open with all their gunfire. Uh, I think the, the newspaper reports eventually said there were 59 bullet holes found. I don't know exactly how many, but they were just spraying bullets all over the place. It's, it's, it actually seems amazing more people didn't die. But your father died and Mark Clark died. And it's a story that just doesn't get told. It hasn't been told. It's a very powerful way. You just put that there to call it that, that for the black community, this is a, this is a 9-11. Because the, the moment was so, and I remember this as a teenager, it was so profound. And it did help to stifle uh, the liberation movement. I've been so moved by this film. And, and Shaka, you can jump in here if you want. Because I, I, while you're watching Judas and the Black Messiah, you cannot not think about what we're living in right now. I mean, Tom, I mean, you obviously, this is your passion project for the last five plus years. So um, you've given us a great gift here uh, historically, but I think I'm guessing there might be other motivation in terms of you uh, living now in the year 2021. For me, these, these topics that we're hitting on in the, in the film uh, are evergreen. You know, everyone I think has, gotten and really like bought into this idea that Trump, you know, started the history of white nationalist extremism in this country. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's the George Floyd situation was terrible, but like, I remember Eric Garner, you know what I mean? That was under a black president, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I'll never forget what watching that video was like and how that devastated me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, I mean, the things that, you know, I, I, it's, it's, people are constantly sort of asking us about the relevance to today and, you know, things like the fact that the, the Black Panthers were so focused on improving health conditions for Black and Brown folks in poor communities, um, you know, and, and the fact that they started a sickle cell program that was so effective that, you know, the Nixon administration had to you know, essentially copy the work that they were doing, not dissimilar to the way that the, that the you know, breakfast became a, a national mandate, you know, in public schools when it wasn't right. until the Black Panthers Correct. did that. I mean, they started that, you know. Um, and that, I think, was what made them so dangerous uh, because they were filling the role that the government claimed to be filling in, you know, just municipalities <laughs> and you know i think the government and jagger hoover recognized that you know if people realize that we're not doing anything except taxing their checks they're going to rise up against us uh and recognize that you know we're, we're literally not doing anything for them so you know there are those overlaps i mean the one thing i just i realized when i was looking at um you know those those white folks that stormed the capitol was just about how, you know, when the Panthers approached groups like the Young Patriots and Rising Up Angry, you know, these, um, you know, poor white folks in, in Chicago, it, it made me think just about the ways in which poor white people have been historically radicalized to work on behalf of, you know, the, the master class. Um, mm -hmm and really been radicalized against their own interests. You know, you look at those old photos of black folks hanging from nooses and, you know, the, the white people like staring into the camera, like their faces are filthy. They got rags on their bodies, yeah. you know, a lot of times, like they're not, they're not rich, um, but they hate us as opposed to hating, you know, I mean, there's a lot in the movie where like the dude's like, you know, my, my folks were sharecroppers, you know what I mean? And, and, and the response is AKA the overseer, you know? Like the, the overseer wasn't that much better off, but the overseer wasn't banding with the slaves to cut the masters though, even though that would have led to everyone's liberation. Um, right. You know, and so. It's kind of a, kind of a genius move on the part of, of the ruling class. It very, it's brilliant, you know, to make, to create a boogeyman, yeah. to create, yeah. to, you know, which is us, which is historically us. It's always us. Oh, we're always the scapegoat. You know, and, and then they add some new scapegoats, whether it's Muslims, uh, you know, Mexicans, you know, and, and just to keep, you know, there's that famous line that, um, 
Ralph Ellison has, you know, keep that nigga boy running, you know, and, and in this instance, like he's, t- he, you know, that also applies to white folks too. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, you watch the movie and you can't help but sort of see the parallels to today. One thing that has stuck with me, maybe uh, I hope, I hope I say this the right way about that day with George Floyd. There's all these other people standing on the street and everybody knows, do not intervene. Do not even think about it. Because from the time of Fred Hampton Sr. and before, all the decades before that, that, that all of us um, have been trained to not intervene, to not step up, to not stop the police. But in this movie, Shaka, um, people who are going to watch this, you're going to experience a strange feeling, perhaps. I'm speaking out of the way people listening. That um, here, here you have the Chicago police opening fire constantly, uh, trying to set the Panther headquarters on fire. And the Black Panther party members in the movie fire back. It's, and the police are like, what? They're firing back? Yeah, dude, when you shoot your gun at me trying to kill me, I think I have an inherent human right to want to live. And that's a powerful, powerful moment in the film. But also, I got to believe, too, um, the discomfort it will make some white viewers feel because this is something that um, we haven't seen. And when we do see it, when the night after George Floyd's murder, and then for weeks after, all across the country, um, there are demonstrations of all kinds, peaceful, nonviolent. Um, some, like in New York City, they just went up, you know, Madison Avenue and broke the windows of any bank or, or you know, high-end sh- place where the millionaires and billionaires shop. Some fires were set. But still, in spite of what everybody's living through, even to this day, there's no getting the guns out. There's no storming the Capitol building. There's none of that. And I said to a friend after watching your film, you know, I think the police actually don't know how good they've got it. And in fact, I think white people don't know how good they've got it. Because imagine yourself in the same situation. You would be doing what the Panthers did there, as you show in your film. You would be defending yourself and your family and your neighborhood. I mean, I think, you know, the reason that people, a lot of, you know, some people will, will watch this movie and be uncomfortable is because, you know, you got to think of narratives that exist. You know what I mean? Like, right, yeah. there's a narrative that, I'll give you an example. I was watching True Detective. The, H- the HBO show. Uh, not that, years, yeah, maybe a few years back. And I'd, and I'd seen it. And I'd seen it, this, I'd seen this episode, you know, a number of times because I, I enjoyed the series. And one day I was watching it and there's a scene where Matthew McConaughey uh, is looking for the serial killer and he asks this guy who's working on a car about his whereabouts and the guy doesn't want to answer him. And he doesn't have to answer him. The guy hasn't committed any crime. And Matthew McConaughey beats him up and beats the answer out of him and gets the answer and walks off. And it's framed heroically. And it's the kind of thing that you that could, you could like I said, I'd seen it before. Right. I even thought about the fact that I was witnessing an instance of police brutality. But, they, but it's been normalized through these narratives, you know? And you have to think about narratives. It's just like, we, we see it constantly, constantly, constantly to where it's not, it's no surprise when you see something like that, you don't even think twice about it, that police don't get indicted after they beat, kill, you know, maim, not just black people, but people in general, you know, and, and even the way that there's a sort of hierarchy in terms of life that this culture gives, you know what I mean? Like when a, when a police officer dies or when, you know, a soldier dies. There's a there's a funeral where everyone is supposed to mourn. You know, we we, we honor them. We we honor not we don't honor doctors the same way. They save lives. They don't take lives. You know what I mean? But we don't honor them the same way. I mean, it was a big deal to just like bang some pots and bells <laughs> during the pandemic. 
you know, but they don't get a, they don't get a, that kind of service, that kind of treatment, you know, teachers don't get that kind of service, that kind of treatment, you know, so it, it just tells you a little bit about the way that this culture elevates um, militarism, white militarism, you know, it elevates those institutions that keep black folks and poor folks and marginalized folks in that position, you know? Um, and so one of the reasons why it's important for a movie like this to come out is to do anything possible to shift the narratives because it's all about, it's all about narratives. You know what I mean? So how can we do that? How can we shift that narrative? You got to tell more. You have to, you have to, you need counter narratives and you need more of them. And the only way that you get more of them is if they make money. Cause we understand this, 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 you know, we understand how capitalism works. We understand how the movie business works. You know, it's, it's why, it's why it was important that this movie be as broad and as big as possible, you know, because the narrative gets to more people, but also if the movie does well, then there are more movies like it and you get more narratives like it. And people start to stop seeing, you know, uh, the life of a police officer is more valuable than the life of, you know, a black teenager. I hope, I hope some young filmmaker, somebody watching, some teenager watching this, your movie, um, leaves with that thought that, you know, I could do this. I could tell a story. I have a story that needs to be told. You know, also with the narrative, the, 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 um, we come from a deficit to my we the people. We acknowledge consistently who we're talking about. I mean, I mean, this, I mean, I mean, not just in theory, like, but in practice, when you talk with these quotes, like, uh, I'm paraphrasing an old axiom that says something to the effect that if a tree falls in the forest, just because you don't hear it doesn't make a noise. That's a, a arrogance because the person doesn't know that something is happening that, you know, to believe that, that it's not existing. And the reality is, I tell people when they watch these shows like Cops, I said, do you, do you think that all them people who got caught, they, they, you know, the police pulled over, they're not going to show you individuals who got away. If you think the propaganda is political, they say when they train elephants in India, if an elephant steps on a cup and the trainer steps on the cup, that particular elephant must be destroyed or taken away. Reason being, if that elephant gets back to the other elephants, hey man, dig. This, we weigh more, way more than this dude. There's no way possible he's supposed to be controlling us. So they're not, this, this ruling class, a propaganda, again, is political. They're not going to tell you. There's, I'll talk to one of our central committee members of our organization. And we told these older brothers down south in Louisiana, the backwoods. And they were talking about, you know, there were places that the Ku Klux Klan dare not even go to. Now, you now here, you don't hear about this. You think the Klan would just run around with this. She scanned everybody. There was some resistance. You know, and I think also to the point of, in regards and respect and also security, it's important when we talk, when we, we, we commend forces, what she did about the filming. However, however, you cannot sum this up in a subjective way. In other words, just it isolates a person, say just her. Let me, let me give you some, let me give some back, some, 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 some information that you won't hear on, that you won't hear in your history books. 30 minutes after George Floyd was murdered. Before that, the Black Panther Party Cubs, we have a survival program right there. In, in Minneapolis, in Minneapolis. Yes, Minneapolis. The Triple C's, Children, Community, and Cubs. We have, we have a history of one, that's one of our chapters right there. As soon as it went down, 30 minutes, we say it's going to go down. It's going to go, it's, 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 it's going to pop. We get the phone call. We was on the road on our way up there. Why? why, why? Our consistent history. Now, I had, I'm going to tell you some inside information. Had that been five blocks away from where that occurred at, you probably have a different discussion right now. That particular area, the climate, the particular organizations that were there. See, we study, we study the people, not in a reaction. You see, the Black Panther Party, because we on the ground. We the timing that we was on the as soon as we went down, we said, okay, where did it happen at? That particular block in the, the, the community, we said, okay, we gotta move. We we, we knew the potential, the potential that was gonna happen right there. So even like similarly with this the movie you were talking about, it's not just it's, it's a whole. I'm so, I feel so, even the struggles we had, the, I mean, the quote, the, 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 to essence, like the dream team, the, the forces from all, you know what I'm saying, different respective fields. And that's the dynamic of, you know what I'm saying, of, uh, of acknowledging that, putting a, a climate where we can have these type of discussions. That, the, the, the resistance, I mean, because you know, like we said, what make this particular? That's when you hear the term seize the time. It's taken into account. 
time and location, individuals, everything. Because certain moves we may want to do may be premature. Certain discussions we can have, people not ready for it. So again, our history of, of being a proactive revolutionary organization, soon as we heard that we was literally on the road up there. Now, again, five blocks away, you may have a different narrative. There are certain, we, 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 police killings happen every day in our community. They have a protocol in the city of Chicago in particular. Mind you, we're an international organization. They tell these families, don't talk to Hampton, don't talk to the Cubs, this, these lawyers, so-called community activists, all of them. And a lot of people come deal with us at, at the last resort. We can't let the last call for alcohol. That's how they deal with us. But again, we have to have a, we cannot fall victim to the position that just because we don't know about it, that's not happening. It's resistance happening for legal reasons. I won't go into detail about, you know what I'm saying, just stuff that's happening out here. But, but the ruling class is not going to tell you that, okay, this, uh, this, this resistance happening over here in this city, this city. We are the community. That's what we, you know, so we, you know, we, we, we have to challenge this, 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 narrative of on one hand saying the system is this, the ruling class is this, but in the, uh, on the other hand, having a reverence and a respect for its, uh, its, 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 its position. The Black Panther Party was a revolutionary organization through theory and through practice. How it dealt with its titles, how it dealt with relationship. A lot of people say, Deborah Johnson was chairman for his wife because th that organization didn't say the system was oppressing us Monday and go down there Tuesday and say, could you validate my relationship? They didn't wait on a movie to come out and say this is this is this, this. They called out contradictions. When Chairman Fred organized the Rainbow Coalition, yes, Chairman Fred, when he often organized the, the, the Rainbow the Rainbow Coalition, there were certain forces that he dealt with. He knew the, the bigger picture. It came out later on, later on about the different dynamics about the University of Chicago, Sears and Roebuck, First National Bank, Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, funding over hundred million dollars cold cash money through fiscal agents. To trickle down to the you know, Blackstone Rangers with Chicago police at the time, at the time dressed up like the devil disciples to create, do drive-bys with Stone's headquarters, creating a crime epidemic so the property in Woodline could be taken away from the people. This was, you know, say a strategic mm -hmm. move, strategic act. But Chairman Fred was calling those questions at a revolutionary time when people was not hearing it. We don't serve cold meals. We serve hot food and we serve hot politics. And we say the Cubs are coming, the Cubs are coming, the Black Panther Party Cubs are here. Do not wait on it to become a safe subject. Tell me what the narrative would be had George Floyd been murdered five blocks from your headquarters there in Chicago? Oh, well, well, first, let me say this. I'm not a, I'm not a, my last name is Hampton, not Houdini. I'm not a magician. I can't give you pinpoint different dynamics. However, there are certain moves we say, we, we certain, we take into account history. That particular location right there, I'm not, and you know, so this is, um, this is my niche. This is my calling. It's organized, and it's and it's something that you don't get. We say ain't no cliff notes. Ain't no cliff notes in Cub class. Ain't no <laughs> over. You know, say one word or answer right. to this here. However, however, we take into account we that area we have been serving, and we know like in city of Chicago, we know the different distinction between the South Side and the West Side. We know the different like even the colonials they came and kidnapped Africans from Africa. They they there were contradictions. So that at that particular time when it happened, the, the location. We knew the potential with it. You know what I'm saying? Now, that's not to say that it won't be no response from other places. But and also, let me say one more thing in close. You, you must, we must assess things in degrees. Also, you look at the uh, uh, diamond, uh, 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 lavish rentals, uh, 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 Philando Cast, the case of Philando Castillo. You look at the mother Mike Brown. This, these are revolutionary. You look at the responses from the people, as opposed to right prior before that. Soon the police murdered someone. The state would send their spokespersons in, and the people would say, "Oh, I don't want to say nothing." Wait till my lawyer come. You see an automatic a response from the community yeah. now, where they running these state sanctioned uh, sanction spokespersons up out of there. So these, so we revolution. It's a process. You see the least. So just even the people to even acknowledge this is a shock. I mentioned earlier. There's a a narrative through the media, through the laws, through uh, uh, the responses. It's you. You taught to believe this is how it's supposed to go, but the deal is heighten these contradictions, and that's we we must have these unsafe conversations. But not come in with the state's rules and regulations. Not coming in saying, "Well, this is not happening." How you know that? Chairman Fred, one of Chairman Fred's speeches, he say, "Guy walk up to him, and say, man, what the Tribune said." Chairman Fred said, "You dead right there. Your conversation dead right there." The fact that you come to me quoting the, the Tribune, the, these are apparatuses of the media, the ruling class. And so, what do we do now? What do we? Do? I mean, there has been an uprising in in a sense over this last year during a pandemic. People willing to risk their lives to get out in the street, uh, in in numbers. You know, they they added it up for the whole summer. There's never been 
that many Americans out in the street uh, in our history over a particular uh, incident or, or cause or whatever. And it's like, you must be feeling on some level that, that this, that things ended up here at this point. Now, what do we do? What do we do to keep this going? Because those in power, uh, the media that you talk about, the police, law enforcement, the FBI, whatever, um, they must not be able to win. It was no surprise to me to see that attack on the Capitol being organized and participating in the leaders with their, with their walkie talkies and everything. It was cops. It was cops, off duty cops, on duty cops, uh, retired cops and, and military there in DC back on January 6th. They, they are, they know what's going on. They know they saw the uprising and, and if it continues, um, where does it, where do, what do we do? I think it's, we we remain consistent with the narrative or not. What do we do? What do we, okay. It's a, what do what, what what do we continue to do? Even if some person has to say, "Wait a minute, let me get my late pass." Stuff resistance has been there. Are, there are people who have been fighting back. It's you know it's a disservice to say, "Okay, I got I got a group of uh, coalition forces I work with right now as we speak." They're they they they're very courageous. But they're they're very reactionary. And you know, in regards to how they look at history, some of them think that this is the first time the police has murdered us. The first time the resistance is happening. We must put this in in, in a correct context of protracted struggle, even if it ended up, like there's one guy, he always talks about how the older people weren't doing nothing. I said, that may be the case of your grandparents or your parents. That's not the narrative. The deal is, we we must, again, put this, we must come in, acknowledge it, and, and it's, it's humbling to say, okay, I, I didn't know about this. You know what I'm saying? That, like a lot, a lot of people are just not hearing about Chairman Fred and the Black Panther Party. What if they said, man, well, nobody doing nothing but the 60s, in the 60s, the civil rights movement. Wait a minute. Just because you didn't know about it, you know what I'm saying? It was there. If you, right. yeah, who knew about it? So that's the first step, acknowledging that there is a resistance happening. And I'm not talking about the ones that the state gives you. The state gives our people, gives the people a lot of these what we call GMO organizations, government-made organizations. Here you go. There you go. A lot of people have never seen a real organic tomato. They have only seen these plastic GMO tomatoes. They have only seen this. The, the conditions now call for real deal vegetables, real deal resistance, and that is happening. We offer ourselves as servants amongst other organizations, the Black Panther Party, because we tightened up our presence online. We said, let's seize the time with this climate, this era, this, this propaganda, this powerful piece, this footage. Do not let it be a one night event. And we, you know what I'm saying? Discuss, just discuss and say, what do we have right now? Again, we, we, we encourage you to go to savethehampthenhouse.org. Um, uh, 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 Black Panther Party Cubs website is forthcoming. And we look forward to doing coalition work. Further, excuse me, further coalition work. With so many people, do not wait to become a safe subject. What do I mean by safe subject? They placed Muhammad Ali on the Wheaties box in the late 80s. And the guy said, why do you put Muhammad Ali on the Wheaties box now? And representatives said, we're doing it now because he's safe. Now, do not wait to become safe subject or the ruling class has sanitized it, validated it, vaccinated it, and say, okay, now you can go. We must move. We, as Chairman Fred said, we got to move fast. We got to move organized. Take this, this movie. You know what I'm saying? Again, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Talent to your relationships. Play, have it short, talk about it. The pool hall, the barber shops, the, the, the college campuses. We all saying we uh, uh, in your household with the coronavirus. Talk about man, what's going on now? Say, wait a minute. What's this thing I've been hearing about the, the, the ideological Cubs, the Black Panther Party, Black Panther Party Cubs. You know what I'm saying? And again, as well as uh, other respective organizations that are out here doing the struggle, concrete, not state sanctioned, but those who are organized on their own terms, fighting for self determination. Shaka, just we've got to go here, but uh, just. Close it out for us here. And um, I personally just want to encourage people to see the movie this weekend. Same, same. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, the movie comes out this week, this Friday, February 12th. It's on HBO Max and in theaters. So you really have no excuse. <laughs> How's it been working with the, with the big Hollywood studio? It's been great, honestly. You know, um, I was apprehensive initially because, you know, like you, I've really only heard horror stories. Uh, of of working with a major studio, especially jumping from you know an indie career, if you can call what I had a career, um, and so I was I was wary of it. Uh, but I've had nothing but really positive experiences. You know, they yeah. I've actually I, I never thought I'd say this, but by the end of it, I actually saw 
what a studio can do from a creative standpoint in terms mm. of taking a piece of material. And, you know, in this case, we wanted to get it to as many people as possible because we thought this was a story uh, that everyone should know. And we thought that a lot of the ideas presented therein were, were things that we should just get out to as many people as possible. So a studio is very good about, about figuring out the ways and how to do that. And, you know, it's really up to the, the filmmaker to figure out how to accommodate those needs, but not lose sight of the vision that they want to perform. Mm, right, right. I, I do expect strong reactions to the movie. Um, and I think if you feel passionate about it, uh, pass it along, pass it along to people who you think will love it, pass it along to people you think won't like, love it. I think you should give it to them first. Um, and uh, yeah, just just really, really move it along and, 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 and let's try to get this information out there to as many people as possible. Well, thank you for uh, making uh, this movie. And um, uh, I also encourage everybody to, to go see it. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. And Chairman uh, Fred Hampton Jr., thank you for participating in this conversation and, um, and letting people know history that uh, is not taught in school. Um, it's very important. And uh, thank you for the work that you continue to do uh, in Chicago and elsewhere. Uh, and to all, all people who are listening to this, who are active in their communities, um, the, you, there may not be a movie made about you, but what you're doing is very important work. And we will... We will fix this. We will get this right. It, it won't happen uh, if we just uh, sit on the bench. So everybody off the bench, get involved. Go see this movie. And thank you again, Shaka King, the director, writer of Judas and the Black Messiah, and Chairman Fred Hampton Jr., the chair of the Black Panther Party Cubs. <laughs> Back to our uh, special edition here, focusing on the film that uh, is uh, out uh, this weekend called Judas and the Black Messiah that deals with the FBI and Chicago police assassination of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, two uh, Black Panther leaders uh, in Chicago who were assassinated on December 4th, 1969. Now, I mentioned to Shaka King and to Chairman Fred Jr. earlier that this government murder, assassination of party chairman Fred Hampton and defense captain Mark Clark of the Black Panther Party of Illinois uh, back in December of 69, that this actually, you know, we heard about this in Flint. It was news because... Mark Clark's family had moved to Flint and was living in, in Flint a, at the time. And so this happened when I was a sophomore in high school and, you know, through high school and after high school and just, you know, knowing the story. And, and when people would tell the story of Fred Hampton, I would always add Mark Clark. Don't forget Mark Clark. And we knew this in Flint. And so it seemed like throughout my adult life, as the years went on, of course, you know, this isn't taught in the history books. And so younger generations didn't know about Fred Hampton and let alone Mark Clark. And so uh, it's always it's always been the thing where I've wanted to just remind people that the FBI uh, is not, has not always been our friend and has done a lot of pretty bad things over the years, especially back when Jagger Hoover uh, was its uh, director. So. I thought today before we leave this episode is that I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Mark Clark and the Clark family of, of Flint so that his name is remembered, so that he is remembered, that uh, his life was taken by the FBI and the Chicago police. His mother, Mark's mother, and his teenage sister, Gloria, who was also a member uh, of the Black Panther Party back then, they were both in Flint when they got the phone call that night, the next morning, telling them of Mark's killing at the hands of the government. So in order to remember the life and legacy of Mark Clark, his sister Gloria Clark Jackson uh, is with us today. She's written a book uh, entitled Mark Clark, Soul of a Black Panther. She created a website, uh, which is activistmarkclark.org, and I'll have that link on my 
podcast uh, site here, so you can go and and click on the link and go to uh, the Mark Clark uh, web website. Um, and again, I'm just honored uh, to have her with us here on Rumble today. Welcome, Gloria Clark Jackson. Thank you for being part of the show. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me on your show. Uh, I absolutely am uh, happy to talk about my brother, Mark, and the unfortunate uh, assassination of both Defense Captain Mark Clark as well as Chairman Fred Hampton. Um, yes. What was that like when, when the call came in, um, when, you, when you and your mother found out that your brother had been murdered uh, by the FBI and, and the police? Well, it was absolutely awful. It was horrific. I mean, there really aren't words to even express what we felt. Uh, of course, we kind of suspected that Mark um, may be killed when we dropped him off uh, in Chicago, which was a week before. So you, you're all, yeah, you're all from Peoria the week before, right? So you guys are all from Peoria, and you had decided you and your mom had your father passed away then, or but you and your mom decided, and I think your other brother to move to Flint, right? Well, actually, my father had passed away in May of 1969, oh, and he year. was the head wow. of the household. Right. He was our, you know, he was the father. And so he passed away in May of 1969. And so my mother, to kind of recover and get over that devastating loss, she moved on to Flint, Michigan. I was still living in Peoria until the week before Mark was killed. And during that, and I talk about that car ride in the book. And so I talk about the things that me and Mark talked about during that car ride and how fearful, fearful we all were to leave him in Chicago. He wanted to get dropped off in Chicago. And we had tried our best to persuade him to come on to Flint, but he he flat out refused. And so we were fearful of Mark uh, being killed because just two weeks prior, a former Black Panther had been shot and killed by the police. And I believe there were two police officers that were also killed in that scrimmage. And so we were very fearful of Mark becoming, you know, a victim. So what actually happened is that when Mark dropped us off, well, excuse me, when we dropped Mark off in Chicago, he hugged us all and told us that we might not see him again. And, you know, we just tried our best not to leave him there, but he was insistent because he had made a vow, actually his title, defense captain of the Black Panther Party, he had made a vow that he would uh, defend the party at all costs. And so we dropped him off, and a week later, of course, um, we were not notified by the authorities that Mark had been killed. It came on the TV. And one wow, of my you brothers, found out, you found out on the TV. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And it was just horrific. I mean, not only uh, it was really a triple, a triple trauma, if you want to call it that, because my dad had died six months prior to Mark. And then my grandmother, whom we had had lived with us since we grew up. She had lived with us since I was 15 years old. She had died six months before my father. And then when Mark was assassinated, it was really just too much. It was just horrific. We were so, you know, what I remember most about that day is my mother Moni when she got the news. And my siblings screaming 
and wailing. And it was just a horrific event because Mark was such a gifted person. So that's what I remember about that day. And I talk about it in the book. But even in writing the book, Michael, it was very difficult for me to sit down and write that book because I didn't want to bring up that whole trauma. I didn't want to have to reenact that and remember everything that had taken place and the murder, the tragic murder of Mm. my brother, Mark. But I felt it was necessary that I do it because so much had been written about Chairman Fred Hampton and not to take anything from him because he was a great leader. But so little had been attributed to Mark. So many of us who lived in Flint or around Flint at that time, you know, we heard the same thing. We knew this. And then we heard that, that somewhere his family or part of his family was here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm sorry we, we never met or our paths didn't cross. But, uh, but you know, I want you to know that, that you were, you, we were thinking of you and, and um, we knew that family was here. And we wanted to make sure that, um, that Mark Clark would not be forgotten. Um, and so, you know, friends of mine who are my family who are listening right now to this, they know mm-hmm. that I have, I, I, and, and a friend of mine, Sam Riddle, uh, uh, from Flint, we always, uh, would talk about Mark Clark and what, in his importance in the Black Panther Party of Illinois, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, you wish that the grief that you and your mother must have been going through and with like what you just described, grandmother, your father, this, and and in order to get through life, you have to somehow put put the trauma aside or put it on the shelf somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. What was life like for you then after that? Um, you know, what was it like for for your mother? Obviously, you had to move on and and do things. And and uh, I, how how much longer did you stay in Flint? Were you, did you spend many more years yes. there? Yes. Well, I did. I stayed about ten years in Flint. And then I moved to California. But the thing is, is that the only way you can really deal with so much trauma and tragedy is to compartmentalize it, to put it somewhere and Mm -hmm. try not to think about it. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying not to think about it. And it really took me about 30 years before I came to terms with the fact that I grew up with Mark. Mark was only three years older than me. Mm. So he would be 73 years old today. I'm 70 years old. Mm. So I, I finally, I think it was 2006, I was able to sit down and collect my thoughts. And I forced myself to remember the childhood things that me and Mark had done together. And growing up with Mark and all the ways that he had affected my life. And the thing that people don't know about Mark is that he was so creative. He was such a talented person. Yeah. He's you there. Know? He's there in the, the characters in the movie. He's there. And and you see uh you see the FBI's assassination of him. Mm-hmm. Cold blooded murder. Yeah. But you see him before his death. You see him. You, he is portrayed as like a really nice guy up from Peoria. People loved him. He was creative. All those things are there. Mm-hmm. It's why I wanted you to to come on this episode because I I want the stories of both victims uh, the, of the FBI uh, to, to have their say. And, and, you know, what I said at the beginning of this in terms of like a lot of especially younger generation doesn't know that the FBI was a was a not a good organization and um, spied on Americans, tried to get Martin Luther King to kill himself, tried to wreck his marriage. The, mm-hmm. the, so many things in there. What was called the Cointel, right? Cointel Pro, um, Pro program of 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 trying to and this this I this word the words Black Messiah. That's was those are J Edgar Hoover's words. And, mm-hmm. and basically he said, we have to eliminate these black messiahs. 
mm-hmm. um, that, that that they knew that that if black people ever rose up and demanded equality and whatever, that that would just take it away from the the white power system that they supported, and so they had to kill uh, uh, black leaders, and that was part of the FBI program. And I'm glad that story is is being told because I don't want that yes. history to be lost. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. A lot of people don't realize that there were at least six assassinations during the 60s. Six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, we had John, um, President John F. Kennedy. Yep. You had Malcolm X. You had Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. You had Robert Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Then you had, of course, Defense Captain Mark Clark and Chairman Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, that's the way they resolve uh, not wanting people to move forward. Yeah. All those assassinations within six years and Megar Evers. Uh, yes. Getting yes. the seventh there. Um, and possibly, I'm sure there were more, but I, yes. I tend to think even Sam Cook. Mm. possibly even Sam Cook. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. well, they didn't like, they didn't like Muhammad Ali. They didn't like, they didn't like any right. African American who was going to uh, cause a ruckus and stand up. And of course, Ali stood up against the war and that mm-hmm. was the end of him for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tried to ruin his life. So when, when you, when you found out watching the TV news that your brother had been killed by the FBI and the Chicago police. What did you and your mother, did you have to go back to Chicago? Did you have to get his body for, to bring it back to Flint or did they bury him in Chicago? Was there a funeral? Uh, actually, yeah, actually my sister Elner um, and my brother James had to go to Chicago and retrieve his body. And they brought it back to Peoria, Illinois. Peoria. And mm-hmm. the funeral was in Peoria, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's buried there. Yes, he is. He's buried mm-hmm. in Peoria, Illinois. And he was really just a kid. It's like 20, what was he, 22 years old? 22 years old. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's, it's so important that this history be told. And they fired, I think I read in there, the reporter, maybe it's in the movie. They they found a minimum of fifty nine bullet holes. They just sprayed bullets. They burst through the door. Everybody's asleep, and um, you know. And I think actually the way the movie shows it is because Mark was the defense captain. He was really the only one sort of awake and sitting up and mm-hmm. making sure they hey because there've already been raids and and attempts to kill uh, uh, Black Panthers in Chicago. Um, absolutely and and they had killed uh, right black panther so um so mark was there but the way the movie shows it uh gloria and maybe you won't want to watch it because they 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 don't even they don't even knock they don't like like break through the door they just start spraying bullets through the door Mm. just like not even uh not like you know if they were showing up to do an arrest or a search or whatever no Mm -hmm. no they went there to kill and and I think they they show your brother in the movie is uh, is the first one they kill. The thing about that is that um, Mark was on uh, from what they say um, security watch. Yes. And the thing about that is that there were ninety nine bullets from the investigation that I did in writing my book. I did a lot of uh, investigation and I pulled up a lot of court records and I did a lot of research, went into that book and they found it to be between 92 and 99 bullets mm. that came from the police. You know, it was just an all out lynching. It was a true assassination. They killed Mark first and it just so happened the two leaders of the Black Panther Party are the ones that ended up dead. And I don't think that's a coincidence because, of course, Mark was the leader of the Peoria branch of the Black Panther Party. He was the, the, right, he was the chair Party. of the Black Panther right, in, in Peoria. And, in it Peoria. Come up to, and, and you guys brought him to Chicago and dropped him off there. Yeah, 
would he would go back and forth and he was good friends with Chairman Fred and he trained with Chairman Fred. Let me ask you this. Why why did Mark join the Black Panthers and why did you join? You know, um, Mark's motivation for joining is that everything that was going on during the 60s, you know, during the 60s, we were still under blacks were still under Jim Crow law. And we were discriminated against on a regular basis. The city of Peoria was segregated based on race and economic status. You had the majority of blacks living in the city of Peoria, and then you had more middle class or affluent whites living in the suburbs or up on the hill. So basically, the situation around the country was so volatile, we were still coming out of the civil rights movement because the Civil Rights Act didn't even get passed until 1964. And so we were still coming out of that and we had to fight for our freedom, fight for our liberation. And that was what caused Mark to uh, join the Black Panther Party. But even before he joined, Mark was an activist he had become a member of the NAACP mm. and he actually went to Washington when Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. He was there for that? Absolutely. And Mark wow. was very active in Peoria as a person that stood up against injustice. And the reason that I joined, of course, like I said, I was only three years younger than Mark. And so I had watched Mark do all of these things. I knew the person that he was and I trusted him enough. But actually one day Mark came to both me and my younger brother, Joseph, who was 17 at the time, and he's no longer living. But he asked us if we wanted to join the Black Panther Party. And this is shortly after he had founded the organization. And so we said, like young people do, I don't know. <laughs> and then he said something so profound that I never forgot about it. He said, there are many who will talk about the injustices in this country, but only a few will do something about it. Mm. Which one are you? Mm. And he had a way of compelling us to not stand in the middle ground, but take a stand for the things that you know are right. That was the kind of leader that Mark was. Wow. Wow. He must have been a great guy. Um, it's uh, so tragic. And here we are now. It's, it's, uh, it's over 51, almost 52 years um, after his passing. And... Um, you know, it's. Uh, I think it's important that we know our history, the true history, the whole history, and Absolutely. and and to remember the good that people like your brother and you did, and how the system knew it had to stop it by any means necessary. They had to, they had to put it down. And here we are, fifty-two years later, Gloria. Right. And and where seriously, this is so. This is one of the saddest things I think. I look back on my life now, and I think. This is, we're still there. We're still, this is, black America is still living in this kind of squalor. The, 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 the bigotry, the police killings, the, the, you can poison the water in Flint and know you can get away with it because it's, they're, they're, it's a majority black city. You know, it, it, yeah. um, wow. It's, it's, it's. On some level, it's it's incumbent upon all of us to continue Mark's work and Fred's work and everybody else who came Absolutely. before us because the job clearly is not done. Well, I am. I will say this. I'm very happy that Chairman Fred Hampton is being given the attention that he deserves. You know, I wrote the book because I wanted to tell Mark's story. So I write in the book about how Mark grew up. I talk about what his influences were and what motivated him. 
to join the Black Panther Party. And those are the things that I think is important because they make up this person that you call a revolutionary. Right. To me, Mark Clark is uh, a representation of all of the many comrades who have given their lives fighting for the liberation of all people. To me, he represents those comrades that are lesser known and seldom talked about. And that's why Mark is a true revolutionary. And I wrote the book to let people know exactly who he was. Well, I'm glad you did that. And again, to get the book, there'll be a link here on my podcast site. All our cities, we have these statues, right? And mm -hmm. we need a statue to Mark Clark in Peoria, maybe one in Flint too. But it's it, uh, yeah, because I I I, I want their work uh, to be remembered. Uh, you told me just before we went on that your daughter um, still lives in Flint. Um, oh yeah, definitely. I go to Flint all the time, so I'm very familiar with everything that goes on in Flint, Michigan. Yeah, so you Especially know the, whole story. the water crisis. Especially yeah, the water. yeah, definitely. It's hard not to talk about it when you talk about Flint. Yeah, everybody is just making it the best way they can. Yeah, this is the situation that they're in. I was in Flint during the water crisis. Well, well I want to just thank you for giving us this time and talking about uh, your brother, Mark Clark. You know, I've encouraged people to see the movie because I think it does a, a decent job telling a piece of American history that uh, is not in your high school history books uh, and should be. So Gloria, Gloria Clark Jackson, sister of defense uh, captain, Mark Clark of the Illinois Black Panther Party, murdered by the FBI, 1969, along with Fred Hampton. Thank you for helping me tell the story. Well, I totally appreciate uh, the fact that there are so many people that, um, do have compassion and understand what we went through. So I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to even speak on it. Well, thank you. Thank you for writing uh, the book. Um, and thank you for setting up this website, activistmarkclark.org. Let me know what you think of the movie. I'd love to, I'd love to hear. I sure will. When you I get a sure chance will. to see it. And uh, thank you to everybody who has tuned in to this episode of Rumble. Um, check out the movie check out Gloria's book there's never too much knowledge and never too late to learn so until next time my thanks to our executive producer Basil Hamden our editor and sound engineer Nick Quaz and I am Michael Moore and this is Rumble <laughs>